Bill need to go up just a little. Where's check, which check, one check, is the monitor? This one. Check, check, check. Testing one, check. two. Check my test. Check one, two. Hey, Bill, check your mic. It's better. I said it's much better. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. I will say this a day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad, he has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad, he has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. I will say this the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad, he has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. I will say this the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. All right, Second John, the elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in truth. 
and not only I. There we go. It went too fast. But also all who know the truth. Read faster, man. Read faster. <laughs> but also to all who know the truth. For the sake of the, tru of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have heard, which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Let's pray. Lord, you have not forgotten and you have not forsaken that no matter what would befall us, by the power of your spirit, by the cleansing of the work of your son, we are clean. And we can walk and we can work in a world shining the light that you have provided so clearly and so brightly that your name would be praised, that our works would glorify you. Pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that we would continue to do such, that no matter what may come, no matter what we face, that we would be found faithful walking in the truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One, Jesus, my Redeemer, name above all names, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, oh, sinners slain. Thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving us your Spirit till the work on earth is done. When I stand in glory, I will see his face. There I'll serve my king forever in that holy place. Thank you, oh my father, for giving us your son. And leaving us your spirit till the work on earth is done. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah. Oh, Holy One, thank you, oh, my Father, for leaving us.
done and leaving us your spirit till the work on earth is done and leaving us your spirit till your work on earth is done all right now, this almost looks weird now <laughs> yeah i'm telling you uh, spacing out all right if you're if you have no idea why it looks different for those of you that have been here for a few weeks and those of you that are, are just joining us again, my plan is this week to get a letter sent out. Elena made labels for me, so I'm going to hopefully tomorrow or Tuesday get it in the, get a letter in the mail, basically encouraging and inviting everybody possible that can to come on back to church. Um, in the letter, I'll have a lot more reasoning that I'll try to include right now because trying to include it all right now would take way more time than we want to do. But in a nutshell... I think we can safely, smartly, competently, and easily begin to return to a, a normal church fellowship. So our bizarre layout this morning is part of that to kind of let people be able to sit with family and people that they've been around while still being able to distance from other folks so that if we do have people who are at risk, then they can still space out. In, in a nutshell, for the majority of the human population, this virus is just not a big deal. So if you're under 70 or you're not in a nursing home, it's not even a bad flu. If you're over 70, which, you know, we, we, do, we do have, you know, a couple of oddballs, but if you're over 70 or a nursing home resident, then it is a big deal, and you should take precautions, be smart, be safe. I think we can do that as a group and protect people and get back to functioning as the body of Christ like we need to. So it's not my fault. Vern's in your spot. That's, that's right where your seat would normally be. It's just you got to kick your uncle out, so I'll let you fight that out. We'll sell tickets. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, the last I've heard from Charmel, they, um, we are not doing our June meal because the health department has informed them that their sack lunches for Sunday night uh, chapel must be prepared in a certified kitchen now. Now, I don't know if that's due to what's going on or if that's a permanent thing. There is a church in town that has offered to prepare all the meals for May and June in a restaurant kitchen. So after that, I don't know. So I told her, I said, if that's what you've got set up and someone's willing to do that, let them have June because our next one would be October. So we have plenty of time to get it figured out by the time that rolls around. Because the other option she had offered was we could get all the food and drop it off on Friday and then their people would assemble it on Sunday afternoon. I'm like, didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. So basically, as of right now, it's limbo because the last thing I've heard is we can't use their kitchen, which is a certified kitchen. And but we can't also now prepare it outside. Yes. Yes. Which really doesn't make any sense because that would be the biggest food service safety issue would be the transportation of the food from the store to them. You would think that would be the biggest problem. <laughs> None. It, it doesn't, but like I said, it sounds like they're dealing with the same thing that we're trying to deal with, and that they're, they're being told what must happen, and they're trying to figure it out. So, 
and that's what's probably happening to them. So I wouldn't be surprised if what ends up happening is a Sunday night meal just ends up being pre- prepared by them in-house long-term, if that's going to be the regulation. They already prepare three meals a day, six days a week, and two meals a day on Sunday. It wouldn't be that much of a stretch to just go ahead and move to dinner. The advantage was it really kind of gave churches in the area an excuse to be involved. So I understand the process. Now, if they're just going to keep the chapel service on Sunday and they do the meal, I would be okay with that. And I would, we would just sign up for even more Sunday nights. <laughs> but then it will probably become part of a different rotation. So who knows what it looks like then. We'll have until October before we do it again. We'll be able to figure that out. So hopefully by the middle of summer, they're back to functioning normally, and we'll be able to get some answers on that. But as of right now, that's the last I've heard. So, All right. To whom did Abraham give tithes or a tenth of everything? Go ahead, Vern. What's his name? <laughs> Melchizedek, which I have said that out loud. My father-in-law has taught an adult Sunday school class. Let me see. When we had this conversation, he'd been teaching the adult Sunday school class for what? About 30 plus years. And I said the name Melchizedek out loud. And he goes, that's how you say it. We've been calling him Melchizedek in my classroom the whole time. I'm like, why does that sound like something you can get at Chick-fil-A? I'd like a double Melchizedek. And... So, you're not alone. Melchizedek, king of Salem. I told you there were two places, so who knew the two places where he was located? I know Vern did. So, what was the first one? Uh, Or what's the second one? I know you know the second one. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7 explains what you saw if you read it in Genesis chapter 14. So, if you remember Genesis 13, um, Abraham, Abraham and Lot come out of Egypt and separate. Lot goes off. Lot then gets kidnapped in chapter 14, and Abraham has to go rescue him. So Abraham and crew go and win the battle against the five kings and rescue Lot. And when he returns, he ought, the king of Salem comes out, who is a priest of the Most High God, and Abraham offers him a tithe of the, uh, the plunder from the battle, and they offer worship to God. Now, that would be unusual enough in and of itself, but Hebrews 7 gives you the explanation as to why. Because remember, when it comes to your Old Testament, it's not the what, it's the why. So first rule of our Bible is how many stories? We have one story. What is the one story pointing to, or who is the one story pointing to? Christ. So if you don't, when you're reading your Old Testament, you're like, I don't get what this is all about. All right, how does this get us towards Christ? And the answer is, how are you both the king from the line of Judah, while also being a high priest to offer sacrifice, which would technically be from the line of Levi. And Hebrews 7 gives you that answer, because Hebrews 7 points back to Melchizedek, who is a king of Salem, which is, by the way, Jerusalem, who is also a priest of the Most High God. He is king and priest, and since he does not get a lineage, he continues in his priesthood as long as he continues. So he becomes a type of of priest that is not from the line of Aaron, not of the Levites. So Christ is a priest in Hebrews 7 according to the order of Melchizedek. So he is king able to rule, and because of the example laid down by Melchizedek, he is priest able to offer sacrifice, and since Melchizedek in that function is a priest as long as he continues, how long does Christ continue? He's eternal, therefore his priesthood is eternal. So you get that picture of what's going on there. It is very confusing, but if you boil it down like that, it makes sense. It's showing you how can Jesus be the ruler who is also the one who can make the sacrifice. Because in in the sacrificial system, they are technically 
two people. And Saul is actually condemned for offering sacrifice and not waiting until Samuel came along. So what you get is the picture of how Christ is able to do these things and operate in these offices. So this was, it was fun. Get you to dig into your Bible a little bit. Now, here's an easier one. Who said, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter? Now, you'll notice in your reason that I want two answers to this one. Mm-hmm. As with everything in life, there's the real reason and then there's the right reason. <laughs> so there's a right answer, but then there's a real answer to this one. So make sure you find both of them and, and kind of dig in a little bit. It's, it's helpful. It'll be, it'll, so in other words, read your Bible. It'll do you good. See, there you go. You're catching along. All right. Any, so we answered the mission. Is there anything else I'm forgetting that we need to go over? Well, t- tell him to move over. <laughs> Jonathan's not giving up on this spot. Just a little bit. Just, just, a, just a teensy, weensy little bit. All right. Um, I'll probably include this in the letter, but part of the plan, um, I haven't gotten any of the uh, financial information for this month yet, probably because Elena won't get it till the first of June, and I'm not going to post May's stuff, which would be three weeks old at this point. Um, the plan is probably going to be, as we move forward, that the goal will be to have a church council meeting in June to kind of get ourselves back on track and get things laid out with returning to a regular business meeting probably in July. So, but, but, but I do want to remind you that my plan is to get, once we get all the financial information out, we want to get that sent out to folks so that you can see it. I don't know if I'll put it on the website or give you a link to it or something like that where you can look at where we've been for the last couple of months and kind of see where we are for the year, which based on what, what, wait a minute, what month is it? Based on what May has looked like, it's May now. It's almost June, isn't it? We are, we are still as a church in great shape. We are fine for the year and I think we should be good. And that's, that's part of one of the reasons why our folks have been awesome and it's time for them to be able to get back to being part of the fellowship again, not just through the mail, but actually with people in person. So anything else I'm forgetting? Going once? Going twice, in that case I'm going to stop talking, we can stand and sing. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to shove away from the earth to the cross. My death to pay from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to shove away from the earth to the cross. My death to pay from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. 
Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on Some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial shore. I'll fly away. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Just a few more weary days and then I'll fly away. To a land where joy shall never end, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Just a few more weary days and then I'll fly away. To a land where God's never in, I'll fly away. Hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. I wandered so aimless, life filled with sin. I couldn't lift my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light, I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. So happy, no sorrow in sight. 
Praise the Lord, I saw the light. Now just like the blind man, I wandered alone. Worries and fear, I cling for my own. Then like the blind man that God gave back his sight. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light, I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I was a fool to wander and stray, for straight in the gate and narrow the way. Now I have traded the wrong for the right. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light, I saw the light, no more darkness, no more light. Now I'm so happy the sorrow inside. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light. Thank you. I'm sure there's enough of them running around here if you need more than one. <laughs> Oh, goodness. <sighs> well, on the bright side, I don't think we'll be as silly this week as we were last week. I've slept. <laughs> Mike's like, I can't. What do you mean? I don't know. Last week, last week was a combination of things. I don't know what was going on all last week. It was, it was something. What? I have no idea, but it, it was something. So we're going to. We're going to try to be like normal people today, whatever that might happen to be. So, <laughs> There you go. There you go. All right. In... That's, see, we, we, we need our wise elders to know when to engage in sarcasm and when to, when to put people in their place. That's what we need, right? So, this is true. Uh, so, with all of that said, let's see. This is going to be a weird day. I'm telling you, the live stream is working. The computer is acting, or is acting like a normal machine, like it's supposed to. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about like all the stuff that's been going on. The sound system hasn't decided it wants to, you know, explode or anything. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know how to act today. So we're gonna have to figure this out as we go. So, First Thessalonians chapter four. We if you have been following along, we know the people. We see how they got there. Finally, finally, in verse 13 of chapter 4, we are getting to the reason that Paul wrote a letter to this church. It's not just all sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. There was an actual problem in this fellowship that Paul was writing to and about. Now, with that said, 
I am going to give you a warning this morning. There is a possibility that some of you will get aggravated with me because of something I will say today. Possibility. More so than normal. Just so you know, I am completely okay with it. Because what you will disagree with me about is what we call a tertiary or third level issue. When it comes to Christianity, the uh, best, uh, best ex explanation I've heard of this, the best description is uh, Al Mohler's uh, spiritual triage. It's like, you know when you go to the hospital, if you go with an upset stomach and someone arrives at the same time you do and they've had their arm cut off, they are a higher priority than you are. They go first. You have to wait. Which is why if you don't go with a life-threatening illness in the emergency room, you spend approximately 12.9 hours in the emergency room before you are seen. Because they are constantly doing what? Dealing with people who have life and death situations going on. When it comes to Christianity, we want to have the same mindset. We want to triage our doctrine. This is what this looks like. Christology, the doctrine of Christ, fully God, fully man, sacrifice for our sins, blameless, sinless, that's a non-negotiable. You have a problem with any of those doctrines, you have a problem with a fundamental core of Christianity, you are outside of orthodoxy, you are now teaching heresy. Doctrine of God, eternal, immutable, gracious, loving, merciful, just judge, all of those things. That is what we call theology proper. If you have a problem with one of those doctrines, you have a problem with a core Christian idea, you are outside of orthodoxy. Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, as taught in Scripture alone. Make sense? If you are outside of that teaching, you are outside of the faith. Those are what we call first-level issues. You disagree on those? We have serious problems. You are not speaking Christian doctrine. Second-level issues. These are things that we think are very, very important, but they don't make you an unbeliever. So, the difference between Baptists and Presbyterians. How we do church. What the church governance is. Whether it's congregational-led, congregational rule, elder-led, a presbytery, a session, however you want to set that up. We disagree. We think those are important. We think there is a way to do that according to Scripture. But disagreeing about that does not make you a heretic. Make sense? Mode of baptism. I know this is a biggie in Baptist churches that people get mad at. Second level issue. I think, rightly, because I think it's biblical, believer's baptism, you are baptized after you make a profession of faith when you are capable of doing so, and you are baptized, when possible, by immersion. That's why we have the big tub up in the roof, in the ceiling. Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists all disagree. They believe in a different mode of baptism and a different purpose behind baptism. I think they are wrong. I think they are biblically in error in how they understand Scripture. I do not think they're going to hell because of it. Now, beyond that, we have third-level issues. Things like, um, how often should you do communion? What does communion represent? Believe it or not, there are multiple views. We follow, for the most part, as Baptists, the, what's known as the Zwinglian model from Ulrich Zwingli out of the 16th century, who taught a memorial view of the supper. So the bread and the juice symbolize the body and blood of Christ, and it is a memorial meal. When we take it, we are memorializing the work. Um, the Lutheran Church would hold to what they call a real presence, what's called um, not transubstantiation, which would be a Catholic doctrine, which is a whole different thing, but what's known as consubstantiation, that it's actually bread and wine or juice, but the body and presence of Christ is in, with, and under. 
So there is some form or fashion in which Christ is actually physically present in the meal, but it's not in the actual elements. I disagree with that. I think they're crazy. That's like so far down the list of things that if you want to argue with me about that, I really have to see how much time I have left in my day. Now, on that same level is what we're going to be on today, eschatology, the doctrine of the end, the eschaton, the study of the things of the end, the last things of Scripture. So we're talking about the return of Christ, some of the, I don't want to phrase this, some of the timing mechanisms therein. If you want to disagree with me on this one, you are more than welcome, and we'll cover that later. But let's recognize that we're talking about a way down the list on the triage. And the reason I say this is because for some people, eschatology is like, that is their thing. I mean, we make jokes about, but there are actually, they don't, not so much anymore, but once upon a time when you could harass people in airports freely, there would actually be color-coded charts that people would bring to the airport and try to evangelize with talking about the differences and when the rapture was going to occur and all of that. And we made a joke about it because it's the color-coded rapture chart guy. You can actually go buy these. They're, they're like bizarre and tiny and little print. You need a magnifying glass with good eyes to see them. So we don't want to be there today. But I do want to warn you that there's a possibility you could get upset with me. And I'm okay with it. I, as the joke goes, I thought about it. I prayed really hard. And I feel really good about where I am today. And so I'm not terribly worried. And if you want to disagree, we'll talk about it later. Now, with that said, we have a lot of dense material that means that we have to cover today, and you're going to have to hear it from a mostly dense speaker, which means you need to pay attention. <laughs> if you want to be mad at me when this is over, that is awesome. Just do me one favor and be mad about something I actually said, not something you think I might have implied. I got lunch plans if that's the conversation. <laughs> so all of that Hopefully we will make sense of this, and you're, I'm going to read this, and some of you are going to be like, there's nothing controversial here. Oh, just, just wait. Just you wait. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And you're like, I don't see the problem. Give me a minute. We'll get there, but first we have to make sure we set our stage and understand what's going on in this section rightly, because as with everything else, a book builds upon what it has said before, and a section does the same thing. So verse 13, we do not want you to be an informed brethren. We got to the problem. They're uninformed about something. This is so good. Remember, this is a faithful body of believers. Go back to chapter 3. When we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. This is a good church. They're, they have persevered under, under trial and persecution. They were founded amidst persecution, and they have stood firm. They have stood firm in the midst of that persecution, and they are rejoicing and looking rightly forward to the consummation of the things. This is an 
awesome reminder for us. Because in the midst of all that goodness, there's problems. This is a reminder because what's going to happen at some point in your life? Life will sideswipe you with a random Tuesday morning, and you're going to be like, how did we end up here? Again, we may mention this a couple weeks ago. Um, this is why I always laugh when every, every job interview I've ever had has asked me the same question. What's your five-year plan? No earthly idea. You're lucky I know what's going on next week, much less what's going on in five years from now. How many of you, if you made a five-year plan in 2015, nailed it? <laughs> You're like, I nailed this five years ago. We're going to be in a lockdown with a deadly virus, and, the way, and our way of life is over. Like, yep, yeah, no, no. Nobody, nobody had that. Not even Nostradamus, and I don't think he had most of what they give him credit for having. Nobody had this. Life comes at you fast. <laughs> it comes at you unexpectedly and it hits you in ways you were not prepared for, you cannot imagine, and that you will not be able to deal with in your own power. That's kind of the point of life. If you could handle everything and you could manage everything, what would you not need? You would not need a God and a Savior who could handle problems and deliver you in the midst of them. Part of the reason you have struggle is to prune you and wean you off of the world and bring you to a dependence where it rightly be, rightly should be on Christ. Now, do not, we do not want you to be informed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. Reminder. Reminder. Who is Paul talking about? And those who are asleep, no, <laughs> he's not talking about your husband during the service. <laughs> he's talking about dead people. Paul is talking about dead people. He sees dead people. John 11 give, kind of gives you a reminder of this euphemistic language. Jesus talking to the disciples. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. <sighs> it's one of those moments, you know, Jesus is just sitting there going, now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. <laughs> Shovel face. You didn't get it when I was being polite about it. So we break out the Monty Python skit. It is deceased. It has gone on. It is no more. It is stone dead. That's what we're talking about. Those who are asleep are those who have departed, those who have died. Now, this is a good thing for us because we do need to put our lives in perspective rightly. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Paul continues on at the end of the chapter. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So what is Paul getting on? You have a mortal, dying body that was born in and lives in sin. You are looking for a perfected body that will be raised eternally. What Adam and Eve were supposed to be 
had they not turned from God. And that is one that will not face corruption, will not see decay, will last, and will be sanctified. Now, we point this out because if we believe this, should we, leave, should we live differently from those who don't? And the answer is yes. Yes, we should. If I believe that this body is all that I get and there is nothing after it, what will I do? <laughs> I will try to preserve it as much as possible for as long as possible, no matter what, because this is all that I have. If this is not all that I have, then I can do what? I don't need to be reckless, but I can be fearless, and there's a difference. This is part of the problem we're having in the modern world right now. We're dealing with a world that predominantly believes what when it comes to a viral infection? That this is it. Once this is over, it's over. Christians throughout the centuries have not believed this because Scripture has not taught it. But it is taught not a clinging and loving of this world, but a longing for the next world. To give you an idea how much we have this backwards historically, because I'm weird, I've actually been reading a book about second century Christianity, so the, the 100s. And one of the things that it made mention of was groups of Christians that, not necessarily in the beginning of the century, but towards the middle and end of the second century, were actually going out of their way to confront the Roman authorities so they could be killed for their faith. <laughs> they were like, I'm going to die, I'm going to be with Christ, I'm going to be raised eternally. So they were literally going to the Roman governors being like, I'm a Christian, kill me. To the point that the Romans were like, go away. <laughs> we, no, we, we don't want to persecute you. We don't want to kill you. Leave us alone. No, 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 no. You did it last week. I'm here. Here's my Bible. Yeah, pick me, pick me. <laughs> and it was actually a problem in the churches that some of the pastors in the area were having to tell people, stop it. If the, church, if the government persecutes you and kills you for the faith, we will celebrate. We will rejoice. You will be with God. But we don't go, you know, punching a bear in the nose so he'll eat us. You know, if it happens, it happens, but we don't actually go after it. Now, I point this out because, do you know any Christians that would be like that? Be like, hey, do you hear they're arresting Christians downtown? Be like, ooh, I'm here. No, it'd be like, okay, I'm just not going downtown today. I'm, I'm good. See, well, yeah, but you're weird, so. <laughs> this is the difference that we have. We do not actually live. And the reason I'm saying this is because practically, the way we live day to day, we do not live for a world to come. We more often than not live for what we have. The, 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 the message of Scripture, the message of Christianity is to forsake that and to live looking forward. That is what Paul is going to attempt to get these Thessalonians to see and to do rightly. So we want to do the same because if they needed to do it then, has the world gotten better at this? As the, has, have, have we gotten better at godliness that we've just got this perfected at the drop of that? No. So if they needed this reminder and they were having this conundrum, guess what? So are we. We need the same thing. So Paul continues, verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So because we believe that Jesus died and God raised him up, and if you want proof of that, you can read 1 Corinthians 15, you can read the testimony of the apostles, you can read 1 Peter, all of that good stuff. Because we believe that, and God is, we believe God is going to raise up those who are dead in Christ, those who have faithfully completed their course. Why do we believe that? 
that was kind of the point of the work of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 again. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, this is one of those jokes. I, I keep saying I can't say the book of Thessalonians. Why? Because what book are we in? 1 Thessalonians. And if there is a 1 Thessalonians, what do you know? There's at least a second. If there is a first fruits of something, what do you know? There should be more coming along. You don't call it first fruits if this is all we got. Here's the first fruits of the harvest. Ooh, where's the rest of it? No, no, this is it. That's not first fruits. That's just fruits. Yeah. So if Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep, then his resurrection is a template. It is a precursor of what? The resurrection, resurrecting work that God will do after. Colossians 1. Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Do you know anyone that has one child that refers to that child as their firstborn? Because <laughs> no. you'd be like, that's a special kind of psychopath, isn't it? No. When you say you have a firstborn, it implies what? <laughs> that there's, there's some other ones coming along behind. <laughs> one that you claim in public, right? <laughs> Same thing here. If Christ is the firstborn of the dead, then that implies what? There will be others coming after him. The reason we believe that this is the work is because beyond just that work itself, this is the promise that Christ has given as well. John 14, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In other words, how did Christ go from here to the Father? Death, burial, resurrection. So what's the promise? If I'm going and you're coming with me, then what is going to happen at some point? The same, same thing. When is, where is the Father's house? This is something important we have to make sure we get correct. Where is it? See, we, we have to have two answers for this. Is heaven the goal of the Christian? No, it's a way station. It's a stopping point. Remember, what, would, what did God create originally? He created a planet with a, a garden, and he put people in it, a physical garden where people with physical bodies did physical work. That was corrupted. What will be restored? A spiritual garden? If that's the case, could, is, has God restored what was lost? The answer would be no. He's given you something else, and if that's the point, then God can't restore, and if he can't restore, then he is not God. But since he is God, what was lost is a physical garden with a physical person doing physical management is restored at the end when you get to the end of Revelation is what? A physical garden with God physically dwelling with his people so that they would do physical work of managing a physical creation. This is why the idea of resurrection is so important. Why Christ told the disciples what? It's, it's an actual it's a body. You can see it. You can touch it. You can, it can feel. He ate food. See, ghosts don't eat food. You've seen Ghostbusters. Slimer pours it all in, and what happens to it? Doesn't work that way. Jesus does what on the beach? He eats the fish. He eats the meal. He goes along. If you remember, that was actually when the disciples were like, okay, this is actually a dude with a body. We can touch it, but we're not sure. But all right, give him some fish and see what he does with it. It's like that, what is that, that Life cereal commercial? He ate it. <laughs> Same idea here. 
we have a physical resurrection. This is the ultimate goal. The spiritual, what we call in theology, the intermediate state. The time between death and the time of the second coming, the resurrection. We have an intermediate state. We have absent from the body, present with the Lord. So we have a spiritual dwelling. You see this in, in, in the book of Revelation with the saints around the throne. But that is not the end-all, be-all. The goal is not heaven on high. It is heaven on high as a way station to get back to a redeemed and perfect earth that God is creating. That's the promise. That's been the promise since the garden. Now, what do we know about God and his promises? He keeps them, Hebrews 13. He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And how many of God's people will God forget? None. John 10. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So if they can't snatch them from the father and the father and I are one, then guess who they can't take them from? Me. That's the point. That's what Jesus is getting on about. Now, verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We're going to take a little bit of a pause here. Because I read, I do read my notes and my books on things, and one of, the, one of my favorite little notes that I like to borrow because it helps me with my cross-referencing and some things that even tie me in and not some time is I actually have a, a MacArthur Study Bible because I like that, like, give you an idea for this section of Thessalonians, there's the actual Bible verses, and there's all the commentary on it. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those deals. I disagree with my own Bible on this and the notes that are in it almost entirely in this section because I just don't see it. I can't see it. This section of Thessalonians is like one of the hallmark verses for guess which doctrine. See if anybody knows their, their eschatology really well. This is one of the biggie rapture passages. Talking about being... <laughs> I told you, I warned you it was coming. This is one of the biggies because we're talking about being caught up to the air, present with the Lord, not preceding those who have fallen asleep, all of this good stuff. All right. I think I can prove this throughout the morning, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. I do not, I have in the past, I have changed my mind on this, but I do not hold to a belief in a rapture. I just can't do it. I can't do it from Scripture. And I think I can prove it as we go through this this morning. As I consistently read my Bible, I have Christ ascending, and at some point, Christ returning. He doesn't sneak back and take us off, and then the world goes to hell in a handbasket. When he comes back, he comes back. So, if you would like to disagree with me on that pass, on that understanding of eschatology, I'm okay with that. I'm not even going to try to convince you you're wrong, unless you try to convince me first. So, just, just telling you ahead of time. Remember, this is one of those third levels, and I keep making a big deal out of this because I can still... You remember the old seating system, which Jonathan is still pining for? We actually had a couple uh, come to a church here for about a month, sat right over there, and then she sent me an email asking me when I thought the rapture would occur. Was I pre-trib, post-trib, or mid-trib? And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you are blessed. Be thankful. And when I told her I didn't believe in any trib, she got mad, called me a heretic, and they never came back. Like, so there are people that take this seriously. They have been here in the last couple of years. Now, Paul is teaching from his own authority. This we say to you by the word of the Lord, 
that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, time out. There is no quote from Jesus on this in the Gospels that says that. There's none. It doesn't exist. So what do I mean when I say Paul is teaching rightly in his authority? When he says that we, we say to you by the word of the Lord, what he means is, who is Paul? He's an apostle. So when he speaks and teaches authoritatively, whose authority is he speaking and teaching from? From the Holy Spirit, promised and delivered by Christ. So if you go back to chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, you'll find this in verse 13. For this reason, we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Now, part of what, you, what I think you have going on is, why will those who are alive not precede those who are asleep? See, I think some of this is just logical. Got to get in line. You also have a sociological thing going on, something that we don't do anymore. Go to a, go to a small town, you know, out in the hinterlands, you know, get out of the suburbs, and yeah, get, even smaller than Byron. It's about like, get out amongst the cornfields somewhere. Especially in the South, I know this is true. You know what every little town basically has? A McDonald's. <laughs> a, church, a church and a bar. You know what almost all of those churches have? That we don't have. They have a cemetery. And you, notice, and you know how many of these small little towns, those churches, if the church is on the outskirts of town, they'll have a cemetery where they are. If the church is in town, the cemetery will be somewhere else because where do we put the dead we put them on the outskirts this is a this is a human tradition in paul's world cemeteries tombs would not have been predominantly in town they would have been out on the highway leading out of town christ is returning as what he left a sacrifice how will he return as a king he will return in royal garb he will he will be heralded as the coming conquering king how does the king enter the city No, just in general, how would a king enter the city? Does he sneak in the back roads? Does he come down an alley? No, he comes down what? He comes down in the main highway. Whom, if you want to meet the king, what must you go do? You go out of town onto the highway to get in line for the coming of the king. This is what you see in Christ's triumphal entry. Who did they think they were entering in with? They thought they were heralding the entrance of a king. So they did what? They're lining the roadway. They're not in the middle of downtown doing this. It's on the road coming into town. Those who are asleep are waiting. They will be resurrected where? Where they have been lain, which will be what? As the king enters into the town. This is why you won't proceed. Where are you? You're in town. <laughs> You're waiting. Yeah, I'm going to Vern's house. Yeah, getting out in the country where I can see him coming faster. This is part of this. The other thing you have is, do we ever have anywhere in Scripture where Christ is hiding his work from his people or the public in general? No. He'd, he tells this to the Pharisees when they arrest him. Why are you arresting me into the cover of darkness? What was I doing every day? Teaching openly in the temple. He's always out in the open. I don't think you can square the church being removed because Christ snuck back. Guys, psst, come here. Shh. I can't square it. I just can't. And the reason I say all this is because even how Paul teaches. So I think this ver I think this little section of scripture clearly proclaims a second coming of Christ that is final and just done. And the reason I say that is things like verse 16. 
The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Time out. Yes, he will. How do I know that that is true? See, I don't need to go forwards. I can go backwards. This is promise. Joel chapter 2. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for, the, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Old Testament, when we talk about the day of the Lord, what are we talking about? Make sure we get our terminology. When your Old Testament is talking about the day of the Lord, it's talking about the day of judgment. God has returned to judge the living and the dead. Christ is now here to, to enact judgment against sin and to reward the righteous. This is what you have in the day of the Lord. What does that proceed with? God doing what? Announcing himself to who? His people, his army, as they then go in together. Remember, there's an us versus a them. What side do you want to be on? <laughs> you want to be on the side that God is on. I don't just have to go to Joel, Daniel chapter 7. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Why is this son of man, who is the Messiah, who is Christ, given the glory and dominion and power of God? It goes on later on in the chapter. The sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole of heaven will be given to the people of the saints of his highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting king kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. He is given that power and authority because who, where, where will he rule? One word answer. Everywhere. Everywhere. See, this is, this is part of the now, not yet. Is there a place under heaven that God's authority does not exist? No. Are there places under heaven where God's authority is not recognized? Yes. Not recognized. Recognized means to acknowledge, to see and enact. Go out through the world. Is the world predominantly living as if they are accountable to a God? No. They are not recognizing his power and authority. That is a now, not yet. Just like we talk about salvation, you have, you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. You, are, you have always lived under the rule of God. You will live under the rule of God, and you are living under the rule of God. But at the same time, you are not living under the rule of God. Because the world does not acknowledge and give thanks to him. They do not acknowledge his power, his authority. Therefore, they create whose kingdoms? Their own. What is the ultimate result of all of that work? Nothing. They will lose which is why the call to the Christian is to be sanctified, to be in alignment with which kingdom? The kingdom of the world or the kingdom of God? Kingdom of God. So that when that kingdom does come, we are living in a place that we have been preparing ourselves for for our entire lives, for our, the bulk of our existence. We do not wish to be conformed to this world, but we wish to be conformed to the patterns of God, where his rule is done, because ultimately his rule will be done, and that is what we long for. Now, continue on. So the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is not a unique idea in scripture. We talk about the trumpet. Now, little thing, our trumpet's quiet. <laughs> no! Exodus chapter 19. This is one of those things you might have missed if you're not paying attention. It came about on the third day when it was morning, that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound. 
This is the people gathered around the mountain as God descends. So all the people were in the camp trembled, and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. The whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. You ever wonder why the people in, in Exodus, when Moses gets the Ten Commandments, people are, when God says, you come up and I'll talk to you, and everybody goes, that's a good plan. That's, that's, a, good, that's a good plan. We're going to sit right here. Because that's how God showed up. Smoke and thunder and lightning and quaking and this trumpet, and you're going, it's like, <laughs> what you're being confronted with is the glory and majesty of a sinless, holy God. You know what happens to you when you're confronted with that? See, it's kind of like, if you think you're tall or you think you're large, go stand in an NBA locker room. <laughs> it's like, he's like, if you're six feet tall and you think you're tall, go stand in, a, in, a, in an NBA locker room and be surrounded by people who are six nine. And suddenly, how do you feel? I don't feel tall anymore. I feel really short. Or, or go, if you think you're a big guy, go stand like next to a bunch of professional wrestlers and realize that the small wrestlers are like six feet tall and 230 pounds. It's like, it's a big dude. It's like, in just about every room he walks into his entire life, he's the biggest guy in the room. As a professional wrestler, you're, you're tiny. You're the little one that we throw around for fun. See, it's comparison. We think we're good. We think we're holy. We think we're smart. We think we're clever. And then God shows up. And it's like, oh, yeah, I'm sinful and I'm busted and I'm broken. And now I'm aware of it. I'm going to go sit in the corner and hopefully no one can see me. Because I don't want anybody to see me. It's like when you're embarrassed. What do you not want? Don't look at me. When God shows up, everybody's embarrassed. Because everybody is aware of how they have fallen short. And the trumpet is what heralds this. Uh, Zechariah 9 also gives you the same reminder. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have hope. This very day I am declaring that I will restore double to you. For I will bend Judah as my bow, and I will fill the bow with Ephraim. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons. O Greece, I will make you like a warrior's sword, and the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will go forth like the lightning, and the Lord will blow the trumpet and will march in the storm winds of the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They will devour and trample on the sling stones. They will drink and be boisterous as with wine. They will be filled like a sacrificial basin, drenched like the corners of the altar. And the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they are the stones of his crown, sparkling in his land. So when God sounds the trumpet, why is he sounding it? Because he's returning. When he's returning, what is he going to do? He's going to redeem his people, judge the nations, institute his kingdom, and the end is now here. Now, can you square that with Jesus? Psst, come on. Neither can I. Now, if you can, again, I say, God bless you. Go for it. I won't argue with you. You can believe it until the end of time, and then when Jesus comes back, you'll find out you were wrong, and I was right, and then you'll be sorry. (laughs) I point this out, though, for a very important reason, and that reason comes to us from verse 17. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Again, this is the end, because this is what we have in the connectedness of the Old Testament to the New. When God comes back, he enacts judgment. When he shouts his voice, blows the trumpet, the kingdom is inaugurated, the final fulfillment of what we long for. This is key. 
the final fulfillment of what we long for. This is not unique for Paul. Colossians 3. If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. See, that's an eschatological verse. That's talking about Christ on high. Long for the things that are on high so that when Christ is shown, meaning when Christ returns, he is now revealed. What else will be revealed? Your righteousness, because you have faithfully kept the course. And Paul's not alone in this. First Peter 1, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That revelation is what? When he returns. This is the goal of our living now, tomorrow, and every day we have until either Jesus calls us home or Jesus returns. First John chapter 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world doesn't know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. This is the longing of all of the apostolic teaching. This is what they have all been pointing towards, what we have all been hoping for, is that we will live faithful, God-honoring lives focused on his soon-to-be-appearing kingdom, and either we will live long enough to see it, or we won't live long enough, but we will dwell with him in the interim and be part of that that group around the throne saying, Lord, how long? We're ready. When you're ready. It's like waiting for your wife. You know, it's kind of like, uh, still got to put the eyeshadow on. And it's not time yet. When will it be time? When they're ready to go. And when it's time, it's time. Husband, you've had that battle, right? You've been ready to go for half an hour, and then you sat down. And as soon as you sit down, what happens? Then she's ready. And why are you sitting down? <laughs> See, marriage is preparing you for Christ. Because what's the reminder from Christ? You should always be what? Ready and prepared. Now, this is where I want to give you some pushback. And this is why I think this is so important and why we don't skip this stuff and why we actually talk about this. In church history, you've heard me say this before, I'll say it again. If you are the first person in 2,000 years to think of something, you're wrong. You're wrong. Not everyone who came before you was a, a numbskull. Not everyone who studied the Bible before you was, was dull. They were smart. They thought these things through. They disagreed with you. Not only did they disagree with you, but everyone who came after them disagreed with you. Therefore, guess what? You're wrong. You can still think that. You would just be wrong. <laughs> yeah, you would just be wrong, and that's okay. The understanding of a tribulation, the understanding of a rapture, the understanding of the church being pulled out of the world before God really makes stuff bad and then returns did not exist in church history until the 1800s. It just didn't. It still to this day predominantly does not exist outside of American Baptist evangelicalism. Yeah, we're like the redheaded stepchildren of eschatology. If you grew up a Catholic, if you grew up a Lutheran, if you grew up a Presbyterian, you were not taught this doctrine because it doesn't exist. What was it about 1800s Baptist life that made everybody and their uncle want to get out? Well, the world wasn't nice. It wasn't. Think through your U.S. history of the 1800s. Every time you turn around, we're fighting another war. 
Somebody's being oppressed. Somebody's being killed. There's another plague or illness or sickness rampaging through society. There was a lot of fervor to get out. Christian, is our goal of living to get out? No. It's to bear up. It's to endure. It's to persevere. Notice where this doctrine builds in this letter. What has Paul gone on for three chapters celebrating? Their perseverance, their willingness to bear up, longing for the return of Christ and the coming of his kingdom. Are they longing for the escape plan? No, they're longing for the consummation, the fulfillment of all that God has promised. And in the meantime, what do they do? They endure, and they still proclaim, and they teach, and they disciple. See, the way you think about the world and what you think how, about how the world will end will change how you live in it. One of the things that we saw in American church history is that the more people were waiting for Jesus to just pluck them out and then the world gets really bad, you know what they did less and less of? Care about what happened to everybody else. Because it's just going to keep getting worse and worse until Jesus comes back. And it might. The reason I think it's going to get worse and worse until Jesus comes back is because people are going to get worse and worse. Because the more we have people rejecting Christ, the more we have people making rules, regulations, laws, living their lives in a rejection of Christ, what are we going to have in our society? More godliness? No. This is what we talked about in Sunday school months ago. If we want society to be better, what must we do? We have to have more Christians in that society. If we want a society that honors Christ, we need people in the society that honor Christ, which is why there's a folly to trying to get behavior to change by changing a law. That's an external pressure. How is Christianity accomplished? Not from an external pressure, but an internal one, changing your heart, mind, and desires, and then the actions take care of themselves. This is why we made this point a couple weeks ago. Knew what was coming, knew where we were going here. The way we change the world is by changing the people in the world. Because if you change them from the outside in, how long will it last? <laughs> a few minutes, a generation maybe. I mean, we've seen this. You ever wonder why, why do we have such wild political swings in this country? It's like, it's like, Republicans can't lose, Republicans can't win, Democrats can't lose, Democrats can't win. It's, like, are, it's the same people voting. What's changed? What they wanted, what they thought somebody would give them, they have no anchor. They have no consistency. How do we change that? By making better political arguments? No. By changing the hearts of the people so that they do have an anchor, so they do have a consistency, and that they do have a Christian hope that is centered upon God and his kingdom, so that they will then enact things in their lives, laws, people that they support, that are in alignment with godly principles. Then what happens to the world in general? It improves. Not because everybody got saved, but because the preponderance of the people are functioning the way that God has designed this place to function. This is, again, why we, we hearken back politically to a constitution that tells you your rights come from who? God. That's important. Because if, you're, if your rights come from God, then who can take them away from you? No one. See, that's a, that's a bedrock and a foundation of a godly worldview. Notice I didn't say Christianity, but a godly worldview. When that is gone, and my, my rights and my regulations and the things that I am allowed to attain are granted to me by government or by other people, then who can take them away? They can. Which means now who's in charge? 
Who am I accountable to? I'm now accountable to people. Ultimately, who am I accountable to? I'm accountable to God. And I want to live my life in such a way that I don't stand before men blameless because most men are godless. I want to stand before God blameless. And what's the reminder that Peter gives you? That if you do that, then as you stand before the people, what will they accuse you of? This is 1 Peter 2. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so then the thing that they slander you with, they will praise your Father. In other words, you Christians are just so nice and good to people, and, and you don't follow along with everybody else, and you give to charity, and you talk politely. You evil, nice people. He's like, mm. I mean, if they're going to accuse you of something, what should you be accused of? Something that actually violates their conscience. Why? Because their conscience is seared, and it is broken. And that's why Paul ends where he ends. Therefore, so in light of everything he has said, comfort one another with these words. This is why that challenge matters. Paul telling them, hey, long for the time when you are released from this. No, know that your release is coming and therefore do what in the meantime? Support, persevere. This is how, what's the reminder? Man, this place is busted and broken. I know, but Jesus is coming back. And this will all be set right. It's not that I get out of here. It's that this will all be set right. We have lost in the American church the comfort of God's judgment. And the reason I say that is because we've lost the fear of God pre pre predominantly in our lives. We don't think in the two categories of God. We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night with our men's Bible study. But we don't predominantly talk about God as otherly. That's why... That's one of the things that I'm reacting to all the time. You ever notice, more often than not, if I present God, how do I present him to you? What's the picture I want you to get more often than not? I want you to get big and mighty and holy. Because you know what I know you got if you've grown up in American Christianity? You've got that God loves you, that Jesus is your friend, and your, your heavenly Father is right there with you no matter what. I know you have that. Because if you have the Holy Spirit, you have that. That's called the imminence of God. What I want you to have is the transcendence of God. The bigness that he has not just you, he has everything. That God has this. And part of the comfort of this world is that when I look out and I see the wickedness of people, part of the comfort that I should have as a Christian is, I don't have to worry about that. God will judge that, or Christ will have borne the penalty for it. And I'm good either way. I would prefer that you trust Christ and you avoid your judgment. But if you choose not to do that, then I do what Jesus said, and I shake the dust off my feet, and I go about my day knowing that God will take justice and that he will secure what is good and that all of these things that I see that are wrong will be set right. That's what I mean when I say a comfort in God's judgment. I have avoided it. I want everyone else to avoid it. But if you don't, it will be good. And it will be right, and God will be praised because he has taken what is wicked and awful, and he has put it out of the way, and he has redeemed this creation. See, this is how we are comforted in this world, because I don't have to escape from it. You'll get yours. <laughs> it's like if, you, if I'm driving down the interstate, and I'm going the speed limit, and somebody flies by me going 90, do I have to chase them down and give them a ticket? No. I know what. You keep doing that, what's going to happen? You're going to get one. 
You might get away with it for a little while, but ultimately, if you just drive 90 everywhere on the interstate, you're eventually going to do something silly, and you're going to go by a state police officer, and you're going to get a ticket. I haven't got to give you one. I haven't got to worry about it. You can go, and I will continue on with my merry way. Welcome to Christian living in the world. If you ask me, or I get a chance to talk to you, hey, you know, going that fast is, is, is not smart. You, you should not do that. There's judgment coming if you keep doing that. I told him. You continue on and live in this way. You continue on in rejecting Christ. You continue on avoiding these commandments. You continue on trusting in him for your righteousness. There's a judgment coming. I told him. You don't stand before God and go, why didn't you change his mind? You stand before God and say, I told him. I'm innocent this day of the blood of all men because I have not failed to preach the entire counsel of God. That's what Paul told the church. He wasn't worried. He told you what you did with it. That's a you problem. Christian, this is our comfort. The understanding that Christ will redeem all of these things, that God's justice will reign, his kingdom will be established, and all of this will be set right. That is a comfort. This is what we hope in, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. We don't just hope for him here, we hope for him where? In the kingdom that is to come. What do we work towards? Matthew 16. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. That's the part we don't remember. What will I give for my soul? Well, nothing, obviously. Yeah, but there's coming a point where the account will be settled. What do you want? That's the warning. What's the comfort again? Go fast forward to Matthew 19. Peter said, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? That's a good question. Isn't this the complaint of the unbeliever? God just doesn't want you to have any fun and be miserable in this life. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, that you who, you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall, you also shall sit, you say that three times fast, upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. See, all this stuff, look at all the things I've given up in this world. You ain't given up anything. All this stuff that's now gone. You have been given eternity with God. It will all be restored. You will be put into his kingdom. You will be given this earth as a place to dwell in righteousness. What have you sacrificed again? <laughs> exactly. And it's partially also our reminder. Hebrews 12. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. That's the people now. That's the people throughout history. What shall we do? We lay aside every encumbrance, the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Doing what? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, that's what we do in the meantime. Well, how do I know I can be successful at that? So what has God promised he will do? He will return. There will be a shout. There will be a trumpet. There's going to be a judgment, and there will be a restored, redeemed, righteous, look at that, three, three whole hours right in a row, kingdom of God that will endure. And it is ours if we persevere, because that perseverance is a symbol 
of the right standing we have in Christ. It is a proof of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a salvation for the people of God. That's what we look for, and that's what we long for. And to long for anything else, I think, is to wrongly view this world, to look for something that I get away. I don't want to get away. I want to serve righteously in the interim. Well, that may not be pleasant. What has God been warning you for this entire time? That it won't be pleasant. That's why Paul tells you. That's why Peter tells you. That's why John tells you. That's why James tells you. They echo the words of Christ. The world will hate you. Why? Because the world hates Christ. Why? Because he tells them the truth about themselves and they don't want to hear it. Why do you think you're going to be any different? They killed him. What makes you so special? He's kind of the reminder. Okay, so what do I do? You know that judgment and justice is coming. And it will be good, and it will be right, and you will stand and you will persevere because God will not forget or forsake any of his people. And so you have nothing to fear and nothing to worry. They do. So we work and labor in the kingdom until that time comes, and then when the end arrives, we go, let's get to work. Because now we have an eternity to praise and honor the God who has saved us and corralled us for so long, I guess would be the right way to say it. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we can gather as your people, that we can worship and we can celebrate, that you are the one who upholds all things, and that if we are fearing this world, then we are not fearing rightly, that if we are afraid of the things of this place, that our eyes need to be lifted up and our hope needs to be set upon a kingdom that is eternal, a kingdom that you will bring where all that is wrong shall be set right. And you will reign and we will celebrate for eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. And the good morning breaks eternal, bright and fair. When the saved on earth is gathered over on the other shore, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder, 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 I'll be there. On that bright and cloudless morning, when the dead in Christ shall rise, and the glory of his resurrection share. When his chosen ones will gather to their home beyond the sky. And the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder, 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 I'll be there. Let us labor for the master from the dawn till setting sun. Let us talk of all his wondrous love and care. Then when all of life is over and our work on earth is done, 
And the road is gone up yonder, I'll be there. When the road is gone up yonder, 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 I'll be there. When the road is gone up yonder, 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 I'll be there. When the road is gone up yonder, I'll be there. All right, uh, you know what? <laughs> Let's just pray. It'd be easier. Uh, Lord, again, as we leave this place, ground us in your word. Guide us by your strength that we would rejoice at your coming, but, Lord, that we would labor in the meantime, that we would faithfully persevere under struggles and trials in this world, proclaiming your great salvation to all, will, all who will hear, being strengthened by your spirit, knowing that you uphold us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.